Uh, well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you, uh, Megan and Colin, for speaking. Hey, they did a good job, yeah? Yeah? All right. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. That was, that was good. Uh, really good. I was so nervous when I was younger um, getting up in front of people. In fact, um, the old athletic director at Beckler Valley High School, Mr. Grossman, would tell you, like, I was literally shaking in ninth grade civics class having to give a presentation. I really struggled with public speaking, and some days still do. Some days still do. Um, so it's an honor to be with you. I am Tim Rogers, lead pastor here, and thank you for being here and online. Always glad to have you guys here. And I wanted to start this, um, this day on this backstory series by showing you a couple pictures here, and they're kind of interesting to me because they, um, you know, they, they stand out as a little bit, bit weird and a little bit funny. So, so check out the screens with me for a minute, and, and look, look at this thing first. It looks like just a normal apartment building with a rainbow, and then you realize that it looks like Saturn and its ring is hanging out just off the you know, just off the, uh, the left side there, right? And like, what's going on with that? Is that Photoshopped? And the answer is it's not Photoshopped. It's actually someone sitting in their passenger's front seat taking a picture out their window with the sun reflecting off of their steering wheel looking like a planet, right? Kind of weird, kind of weird. Now, another picture that's kind of interesting to me is this picture of a uh, frozen tundra from the sky. You can see how vast and expansive the wilderness is until you zoom out and you realize it's actually just a frozen puddle on the ground. Zoomed in, that's it. That's all it is. It's a frozen puddle, no frozen tundra, no massive expanse, no trees, just the frozen puddle. This one is kind of fun too. This kind of, it may be harder to see because of this, the contrast in light and dark, but you can see the moon over the evening ocean and kind of relaxing time, you know, on the beach perhaps looking out to see that until you zoom back and realize it's actually, this is even harder to see than I want it to be. This is actually a back alley um, and that's frozen ice there and there's actually a dumpster in the foreground there if you can see that. And so not nearly as interesting as one might think it would be at first and it kind of brings up this point that I want to start with and that is that things like people are not always what they seem, right? Things like people are not always what they seem. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that personally or not, but that's what I want to talk about this morning. If you as a person have ever experienced the judgment of other people on you who look at a portion of your life and say, oh, I don't ever want my kids to hang around with them because they're the bad kids in the school, or, oh, they used to be a good church kid, but then they did this instead, and now I'm going to judge them on this little sliver of their life and cover their whole life with it and say, those are people that I don't really want to be around, or sometimes we do that to other people, and we are the judges of other people, and this principle is true whether you're the one judging or the one being judged. Either way, it doesn't feel good because the truth is, and we know this, at least in our head, that things like people are not always what they seem to be. And in this story this that we're going to get into this morning in our backstory series, we're going to look at someone in the Old Testament who, if you're familiar with your Bible and used to being in church, you will likely have heard of this person before, but they are not an Israelite, but they're in the Old Testament. They're actually a Canaanite. We're going to look at a Canaanite woman this morning and learn a little bit of a lesson from her story that I hope will be helpful 
uh, to you. Now, before we turn to where we're going to be this morning, I want to tell you just a little bit about Canaanites, just so you understand the context of what we're getting into. In the Old Testament um, nation of Israel, so hundreds and hundreds of years ago, we had the Canaanites and we had Israelites and other enemies of Israel, but the Canaanites show up in the Old Testament and they originate from a story that I told a couple weeks ago here from the story of Noah. And many of you know Noah's story, but one of Noah's sons, Ham, um, he did something he shouldn't have done at the end of the account of Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And, and Noah curses his son, Ham, and then all of his descendants, which become the Canaanites. And so the Canaanites, in the eyes of the Israelites, are basically people of a curse. They're people who have been cursed, whereas the Israelites are people of promise and people of blessing. The Israelites are people who follow one God, Yahweh, the one God. That's their unique peace, uh, you know, in the Old Testament. The Canaanites uh, follow multiple gods, whatever gods, you know, fit their fancy at the moment. And those gods sometimes fight and compete with each other. Those gods are often promiscuous or sexually free. There's a lot of um, prostitution happening in the temples in Canaanite worship. And we have two completely different forms of worship going on. It was illegal. It was against the law of Moses, against the law of God in the Old Testament for an Israelite to marry a, a Canaanite. And not just a bad idea, but it was against the law of God. And so the Canaanites were really set up as the enemy of Israel, and yet they shared borders at times, and they shared similar family heritage, <laughs> traced all the way back together to Noah. And because of that, then they also shared some common language. They shared some common phrases. They would talk sometimes the same. There was parts of their culture that were actually very much intertwined, and that made it even more difficult. The Canaanites were actually better at metalworking and often would develop weapons that were of a higher grade than the Israelites. And so when they would fight with the Israelites, often the Canaanites would have a a weapons advantage. And when the Israelites could defeat the Canaanites, they would take their weapons and learn from them and what they're going to do. In fact, the Canaanites were so good at metalworking that they actually will read um, when Solomon was building the temple, he invited Canaanite laborers to come in and help build the temple because of their skill in their, their work. Very interesting reality. And so there began to be some confusion even between the Israelites about, well, <laughs> How much do we want to stand off from the Canaanites? Because they can be an advantage to us. We can learn from them. And, you know, they're not altogether bad. And they kind of begin to, you know, fight a little bit with how much do we really, you know, step back and hold off from them. Even to the point where in 1 Samuel we read that some of the um, practices um, in the temple that the Canaanites were doing became a problem for the Israelites, where there began to be temple prostitution that showed up in Israel. Where did that come from? It came from Canaan. And those who were purists, those who wanted to follow the law of God, would say, this is the problem with our country. This is the problem with our nation. This is why our hearts are wandering, because we're, um, you know, we're not holding to the truth of what God wants us to hold to. And we're, we're giving up our you know, borders, our, our parameters. We're giving up what we know we should really be doing, and we're kind of compromising our faith. Now, the person we're going to look at today is not just a Canaanite, but was also a Canaanite prostitute. Now, if you can imagine what a Canaanite might look like in the eyes of a pure Israelite, imagine what a Canaanite prostitute might look like in the eyes of an Israelite. 
Prostitution was, of course, illegal in Israel, and uh, if, you're, if you were a priest and your daughter happened to become a prostitute, she would just be killed. That was the law of God. She would be you know, killed. Capital punishment was her, her punishment for that. The temple couldn't even receive money from prostitution, so if you were involved in that and wanted to give to the temple, you couldn't because we wouldn't even accept it. We don't take that kind of money. And so I just want you to imagine what it might be like for someone who's a, a Canaanite prostitute and how the Israelites might view someone like that. It doesn't take much to imagine what that would actually be like or feel like. And so we're going to get into, and I hope this morning, learn from a Canaanite prostitute. Her story shows up in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. That's why I want to invite you to turn. And it's a sixth book in your Old Testament. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there now. If you don't have one, there's a Bible in our chairs, our row near you. That's our gift to you if you don't own one. But Joshua chapter 2 is where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to kind of be there for a second because what's happening is the nation of Israel is um, in the, the process of taking over what's called the promised land. And the promised land at this point, some of the promised land that was promised to Israel currently belongs to the Canaanites. And so to, to get it, you got to go get it. They're not, they're not going to give it to you. So you got to go get it. And this is part of the the wartime history of the nation of Israel, and this is the story, if you're familiar with the story of Jericho, this is, this is that story. So what happens in Joshua chapter 2 uh, is that there are two spies that are sent out from the camp of Israel to go spy out Jericho, a well-fortified city, a big city with a big wall. And what are you going to do if you're the spies of Israel how can you get into the nation of Jericho, or into the city, excuse me, of Jericho, uh, without really being seen? If your two men come in late at night, whose house might you go to? And the answer is you might just go to the prostitute's house, because there's always men going in and out of there. We're not going to think twice about that. Go in under the cover of darkness, and well, there goes some more men in there. And that's exactly what these two spies did. They went into the prostitute's house. And, when they were there, word came to the king of Jericho that they were there. And so the king of Jericho sent a couple of people out to this prostitute's house and knocked on the door because he knew and he was told why they were here. His intelligence was very good. Maybe he floated a balloon over their city and learned through surveillance what happened. I don't know. Just kidding. All right, sorry. That was kind of low. Anyway. We'll try to bring you all back here. All right, let's get, let's get right back to it because these people came, coming from the king... They go and they knock on her door, and here's, here's what happens, verse 4 of Joshua chapter 2, here's what happens when there's a knock on the door, and they, they say to him, let me just read in verse 3, excuse me, back up to verse 3, the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, that's her name, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Now, I just... Imagine the weight of this real quick. You have all of a sudden the official representatives of the king at your front door. They represent life and death right there. And if you don't do what the king wants, there's not a big discussion about what happens to you. And so in that moment, it's incredible to me how Rahab was able to bluff her way out of trouble quickly. <laughs> wow, really smart woman. If you ever had a situation where you had a conversation with someone you didn't expect, and then later, we're like, shoot, I wish I would have said that instead, right? Like, I get that all the time. Rahab's response is actually pretty amazing, given the weight of the moment. But the woman, verse 4, 
had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, and she's lying, all right? She's good at bluffing card games. I'm not. She would be good at this. She's like, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. That's not true. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. That's also not true. I don't know which way they went. Not true. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. All right? This is all a lie. This is actually amazing. I mean, this is really to have the ability to come up with that game plan real quick and to put that out there. And she's saying to them, listen, uh, you know, this is on you. They were here. Sure, they were here. But I don't know where the world they went. Well, where they went was up to the roof of her house, and she covered them with what, what we call flax. So look, look it up in verse, uh, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night in the upper part of her house, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Why did it happen? And here's her faith statement. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. That is a profound faith statement for a Canaanite prostitute to make. Your God, your God, he is the God in heaven and on earth below. He is the God. That's an amazing statement. What happens from there, Rahab's story, what happens from there is she allows them to stay and she asks them, will you please show kindness to me like I've shown kindness to you? When you come, because I know you're coming, you're going to bring back the, the, the army of Israel. We know that you're going to win. I know that you're going to win. Will you please keep me alive? Because I've risked my life at the door. You saw those guys come. I sent them away. I've, now my, I've risked my life for you. Will you save mine when you come back? To which they say to, to them, our life for your life. Yes, we will do that. And here's a scarlet cord to tie around your window. And if you keep it tied around your window, when we come back, anyone who's in this house, we will protect. But if they go out onto the street, their blood is in their hands. But if you have this cord here, we will protect you and your house, and we will get you out of there, which is exactly what happens. In Joshua chapter 6, the nation of Israel comes and walks around Jericho. And if you've heard the children's story, they walk around seven times on the seventh day, and then they all scream, and the walls fall down. Interestingly, Rahab's house is built into the wall. So how this worked exactly, I do not know. But Rahab's house evidently did not just crumble down as if the whole wall crumbled. Evidently, it stayed intact enough where the people inside were safe. And Joshua sent, uh, and the spies came back and said, all people in this house, you come with me, we're taking you out. And then everyone else and everything else is gone. <laughs> Is done. We are saving nothing from Jericho except for this Canaanite prostitute and her family. And here's what they did with her in Joshua chapter 6, verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And look at the last statement. And she lives among the Israelites to this day, a Canaanite prostitute. She lives in the middle of, among the Israelites to this day. Powerful statement. In fact, God himself had something to say about Rahab. In Psalm chapter 87, verse 4, here's what we see. He says, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia too, and Tyre along with Cush, and will say, this one 
was born in Zion. This one, these, this is a representation of a whole variety of people who have turned to God over time. Rahab is among them. And he's saying, it's as if I'm now looking at Rahab. I'm looking at Rahab not as a Canaanite prostitute anymore. She was born. She was born in Zion. She has all the rights and privileges of a native-born Israelite. She was born here. That's, that's who she is. Interestingly, when Matthew in the New Testament decides to try to give um, the genealogy of Jesus and tie Jesus back to David because God made a covenant with King David that there would always be a descendant on the throne. And Jesus became that descendant who became the Messiah, right? Who was the Messiah. Well, when he did that, he helped us understand Rahab's role in this genealogy. Salmon, or salmon, sounds like a fish, I know. We'll deal with that. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was a Canaanite prostitute, Rahab. So Boaz's mom was Rahab. Boaz, if you remember the story, you'll see there, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So Boaz and Ruth were married. Boaz, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, Boaz was the gentle kinsman redeemer who redeemed Ruth and saved her, was compassionate and kind to her. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Now, the genealogy is a little kind of weird, but here's the way it works. Basically, what this is saying, if these are tight genealogies, it's simply reminding us that Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of King David, a Canaanite prostitute. When I think of the, the power of that, I have to ask myself the question, and here's the question that this message has revolved around in my mind at least, and that is this, how does the fact that God used a Canaanite prostitute in his kingdom plan impact the way that I see people like Rahab? How does the fact that God used a Canaanite prostitute and put, it, put her in the line of Jesus, the great-great-grandmother of King David, made her say, you're born here in Zion, you're one, you're one of us. How does it impact the way I see people like Rahab? That's my opening question. And so I began to think about my own backstory. I don't know about your backstory. When I was younger and you know, sometimes not much younger than I am now because I'm really super young, right? Um, a little laughter on that. You're, you're allowed to laugh. But when I was much younger, for me, the Rahabs are pretty simple. They're really simple. I mean, life... I think I'm understanding more now of how our brain and our minds develop. When we're younger, there's right and wrong. There's cops and robbers, right? And there's black and white. And there's you know, things that are good and things that are bad. And the nuance escapes us when we're younger. Um, so for me, it was easier when I was younger to identify the Rahabs, the people who my parents would warn me about. People who I would be like, oh, I don't want to be like that. The people who listen to the wrong kind of music. The people who have sex before they're married. The people who do drugs. Even the people who have tattoos are in that category, right? We're in that category for me, right? These are the people that you don't aspire to, I didn't aspire to, that in fact I was actually a little happy that I wasn't like, and that I would be fine to stay over there, and stay over there, and, and I'm over here. Like, you're there, I'm here, we're good to go. And then I began to think, I grew, I've grown up, hopefully, a little over the years, and matured a little bit, and so I don't have those categories anymore in my mind. But then I began to think, well, really, am I truly free of that? Am I really free of that? And I began to ask, who are the modern-day Rahabs that I wrestle with and maybe that, that you might wrestle with? 
And begin to think about that one, that became a little more personal. That became harder because then I had to address the, the question of do I still have Rahab's today? And my first thought in the culture that we live in today is I think it's not difficult for us to put our political opponents in this category. Is it possible that God could take someone who votes on the other side or even has a different stance on a key issue for me and maybe potentially use them in the kingdom of God in a way that I cannot even possibly imagine right now? Is it possible that someone on the other side of the pro-life or pro-choice debate could be used by God for a powerful way in his kingdom sometime in the future? Is it possible? Is it possible that someone who votes left or someone who votes right could ever possibly be used? I mean, are you serious? Do you know what they really believe? Is it possible that someone who has a very different view of sexual morality or even gender identity, someone who's so, in my mind, lost or backwards or confused, whatever I describe that, is it possible that someday in the future God could use someone like that in his kingdom, in a powerful way, not unlike Rahab. Is that possible? Or have I become comfortable to say, you know what, oh, there are some Rahabs in the world, baby, and I'm glad that I'm not them. And I live in Israel, and they live over there. What does Rahab's story teach me? What does it teach me? And then I began to think about a story that I had to read when I was in high school. In 1850, here in America, a guy named Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a novel called The Scarlet Letter. How many of y'all had to read that when you were in high school? All right. How many of y'all loved reading that in high school? All right. Bunch of weirdos. Okay. All right. I respect that. I respect it. I really do. I respect it now. I respect it now. I didn't then because you were just further along than I was then. I mean, it's a really powerful novel. And so The Scarlet Letter is the story of uh, Hester Prynne. And this is a, a painting, a rendition of it. And if you know the story at all, Hester Prynne is this character here in the black dress with a scarlet A on her chest because she's been accused of adultery and she, she had sex with a man and, and got pregnant. And as you can see here, it's, it's pictured she's coming in from the woods. So she's walking on that path. She was um, condemned to go live on her own in the woods while when she had to come into the village to get groceries, for example, get something to eat, people would uh, kind of pull back and in hushed tones identify her and, and you can see the, the parents talking to the children like that's the one, that's the one you're supposed to stay away from, don't do stuff like that. Whereas the, the, you can see the women on the other side of her are kind of pulling away and, and getting away from her and the scarlet letter, the scarlet A for adulterer was on her for years and she has in her left arm, she's holding her daughter Pearl who's looking around wondering about this world that she was born into and why it is that these people are judging her the way that she is. And so her story is very different than the other children there and what they experience. And they're village people. And then there's the, the woman who's cast away to live in the woods. And it becomes a very convenient way to separate our society, to say that there are some people who are going to live in the woods, and then the rest of us get to live in the village. <laughs> We get to set aside the people that we may not like, and they get to live in the woods in our little mind, and we get to live around with the people that we really like in our own village. We can create it the way that we want to create it right now. There's another character in the story, and his name is uh, Dimsdale, and he is the pastor, a really strong name for a pastor, Dimsdale. Dimsdale's actually the one who slept with Hester Prynne, um, and for years he is racked by guilt because he doesn't tell, he doesn't confess. And Hester Prynne bears the weight of all of the public shame while he bears it privately and tries to carry on his charade publicly. And after a while, Nathaniel Hawthorne writes this about what happens with Dimsdale. 
He puts it this way in his words. He says, no man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. No man can do this for any period of time. You can't for any considerable period of time wear one face to yourself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. What's he saying? The way I see this is that when we make this world into people who have to live out in the woods and people who are in our own village, it becomes, it can become confusing for us who live in our village. We can think we're pure. We can think we're innocent because we've defined all that is wrong by the people out there. And we've forgotten sometimes that we share guilt we share shame. We share things that we would prefer not even to share. And sometimes then the villagers, when Hester Prynne comes walking through their midst, what do they see? They see their innocence in light of her guilt. And they're wearing a mask of innocence, but the truth is they share a guilt that they're not willing to look at, and they're wearing two masks. And at some point you forget what is true, and you actually begin as a village person to think that you're better than you are. You begin to think that shame like hers would never reaches you because I'm not that person. I don't live in the woods. I'm not the Canaanite prostitute. I didn't do those things, and I begin to wear a mask that makes me look innocent and begin to lose perspective on who I really am. It can become overwhelming. Now, one of the realities, if you think about it this way, what benefit, what benefit was the scarlet letter to Hester Prynne? What benefit was there? And that's a funny question. What benefit was there? What benefit was there for Hester to be able to openly and freely embrace her own sin and shame? What benefit is there? I love the way Hawthorne writes about it. He puts it this way. She, Hester, had wandered without rule or guidance into a moral wilderness her intellect and heart had their home, as it were, in desert places where she roamed as freely as the wild Indian in his woods. In other words, her mind, her heart, they were not in a place where there was life and water and fruit and sustenance. It had roamed in desert places, and she roamed there freely Here's what happened. The scarlet letter was her passport into regions where other women dared not tread. Shame, despair, solitude. These had been her teachers, stern and wild ones. And they had made her strong, but taught her much amiss. What's the benefit of the scarlet letter? When you are honest with your shame and guilt, and you can live freely out of it, you can actually feel and experience the weight of shame, despair, and solitude. It feels like an absolute desert. Isn't that a great gift? Isn't that what you all are hoping for? You come into the New Year's resolutions, you come into a new season, I can't wait to wander in the desert and feel the weight of my own shame. But what a gift it is, what a gift it is to wear that and to try that on. Because if you don't ever try that on, 
If you don't ever feel the weight of your own shame and despair and wander in the wilderness of your own discouragement and solitude, you will never feel the life of God's mercy that reached you there. You will never but intellectually experience the gospel. You will never feel the reach of God's mercy as a Canaanite prostitute to be called from the places that we were called from to really experience the beauty of God's life. Oh, you'll get it in your mind, but you won't get it in your soul. This is the gift of the scarlet letter, to not wear the mask and to say, let me own it. I am, I am just like Rahab. I am just like Hester, friend. Hawthorne ends this way, after Dimsdale finally confesses, he puts it this way, if truth were everywhere to be shown, a scarlet letter would blaze forth on many a bosom. If truth could finally be told, because if you know this story, what Dimsdale does is on his chest, he scratches in or claws in or burns in a scarlet letter A. So when, when his shirt is off and you finally see his bare chest, there's an A that he has borne here because he's privately wanted to own it, but he's been afraid to embrace it. And so he's worn it and wrestled with it, but it's been undercover for so long. Hester Prynne is free. This is who I am. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And that ownership has allowed her to roam into a place that Dimsdale never could roam. She was freer than he ever was, freer even than the village people who stood in condemnation of her, free to roam into shame and despair and guilt, but ultimately free to experience a God who would reach so far as to, like Rahab, to pull her out of that. And so this is where I come back to again, how does the fact that God used the Canaanite prostitute in his kingdom plan impact the way I see people like Rahab? Because he did. He reached into the lowest of low on the other side of the fence and said, ah, you, the one that everyone wants to send out to the woods, you're going to be King David's great-great-grandmother. Watch this. Jesus is going to come from your line. What are you going to say about that? <laughs> wow. 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 See, my problem is this. Sometimes I'm more comfortable condemning the scarlet letter in you than embracing the same in me. Sometimes that's just the way that I am. I'm more comfortable. I'm more comfortable condemning the scarlet letter in you than embracing the same in me. And so I have just one question, and I could have answered this more, but this morning I decided not to because I want to encourage you to sit with it and to have a conversation with a spouse or with your children or with a friend about this simple question. It has three parts, but it's really very simple. And that is this, what can Rahab teach me about God, myself, and others? What can Rahab teach me about the character of God, the God who would do that, who would take a Canaanite prostitute and plunk her into a line of royalty, not just royalty, but divinity. Crazy. What can he teach me about myself? How quick I am to make you or them the Rahabs. To see no future hope for God's redemption for those who most offend me and most trouble me. What does it teach me about others? And how sometimes I'm not willing 
to allow that God can do more, even in my enemies, than I could ever possibly imagine. This is the story of a Canaanite prostitute, Rahab, whose story is amazing. God drew her, brought her in. Things like people are not always what they seem. And Rahab, a beautiful story of faith and of redemption in the middle of it all. Let me encourage you to ask this question, because I think God can teach me, and I hope teach you, about himself, about you and others, through the story of a Canaanite prostitute, the least likely to be brought into God's kingdom, but was. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be in your word this morning, to step back in time and to see a story from the Old Testament that uh, really defies our imagination sometimes, if we're honest. To imagine that you would take someone who's the lowliest of the low and the most immoral that we can conceive of and use them for such redemptive and amazing purposes. And we, today, sit here as a recipient of your grace to Rahab, through whom you continued the line to David and ultimately to Jesus. And so we, those who place our faith in Jesus, are recipients of this grace and mercy, even all the way back to Rahab. So Father, I thank you for that, and I pray that you would help us. As we walk amongst our friends and family and amongst those who are very different than us, who have different values and who really make us upset sometimes, make us very angry, I pray that you would help us not to wear the mask of innocence too tight, not to create village people and woods people, to condemn in them, but not to be able to see in me some of the same shared guilt. I pray that you would help us to sit for a minute in our own wilderness and be comfortable in our own sin and shame not that we might stay there, but so that we might maybe even for the first time really feel what you have done for us to save us in our own wilderness. So, Father, I pray that you would help us learn from Rahab what we need to learn. We love you. We thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name.